A very warm welcome to all our listeners on Behind the Deal, a new podcast series that explores the intricacies of venture capital from the very best with co-hosts Ashish and Vishnu Priya. Today with us we have Siddharth Mehta from Shell Ventures. Siddharth is also part of the founding team of Shell India Startup Accelerator E4. He has deep experience in legal, program execution, financial and deal structure. It's a pleasure to have you Siddharth on Behind the Deal. um looking at your profile you're the principal at shell ventures and the deal lead at e4 uh, could you just take us through your role with regard to hunting mentoring and finally launching these startups just for our viewers benefit sure uh, so as you said uh, vishnu priya i'm kind of managing shell venture activities in india and uh, the key part of my role in uh, shell ventures is to look for innovative startups with really disruptive technical and business models which can be of strategic relevance to shell uh we are not a pure play financial investor so shell ventures invest in companies which would be strategically relevant for shell in the long term on the e4 side i am kind of managing the entire investment and portfolio management process uh and e4 just for the audience is a startup program based in shell india where we work with the early to mid stage companies for 6 months to to a 2 year period and help them actively scale up the companies uh build right product market fit build right gtm strategies and at the end just help them build right and successful companies uh my key role as i said it's it's more spanning around the investment and the portfolio management side and what we typically look and we will go in more detail in this course is we look for the right teams uh, the right founders uh, the right product what they're working on and especially the market dynamics uh, would be the critical factor when we choose uh, startups for both venture making and e4 that's great sadat so let's let's dive a little bit deeper into uh, shell ventures and e4 so yeah. e4 as you mentioned you know it is in terms of a growth stage startup and uh, so uh, assume shell venture is more for scaling so what are the key differences and sort of themes uh, in or overlaps there are between shell ventures and e4 no great yeah absolutely so uh, see energy systems are kind of changing at a very rapid uh, pace across the globe and there are very degrees of complexities and very degrees of carbon uh, element and carbon neutrality coming into picture and this change is kind of catalyzed by a growing demand for energy and the increase electrification and the digitalization of the energy systems so those are few of the very important themes which are coming into perspective for a company like shell when we start thinking about innovation and working with startups uh the whole ecosystem is kind of driven by a very urgent need to decarbonize the energy mix to curb emissions and as you would realize a lot of macro things which are happening now across the globe which with a big push on uh, clean en- energy and climate tech so scalability and affordability are very important uh, in the whole innovation uh, energy industry and to harness the advancements made outside shell shell has open innovation teams which address the startup innovations along the every technology readiness level shell ventures uh, where i kind of uh, come from is the corporate venture capital arm of shell where we target startups and small and medium enterprises which are in the early stages of maturity or are starting to scale up and grow their business uh, shell does take minority investments in companies to find and develop leading technical and very disruptive business models in areas of strategic interest to shell businesses So shell ventures investment domains are i would say three folds one of them is resources which includes oil and gas and chemical focus second is power which includes solar wind connected energy and storage and the third one which is a very broad you can say fuels and mobility which includes hydrogen biofuels connected mobility and freight and i would say this is one area uh, the fuels and mobility section which we feel is very active and very prominent in india and then there's a fourth subsection we call like multi industry solutions which includes all your digital innovations and it is kind of cross cross spanning across all the three other buckets which i mentioned and it also looks at some of the future uh, technical solutions like a self driving car or hydrogen as a fuel or lidar technologies so in shell ventures we kind of look for uh technical and business models which can have a material impact on the cost in particularly in the oil and gas sector or create opportunities for future business growth for the new energies section uh we have a global footprint of 24 people in uh, in the ventures team uh, with offices across uh, us uh, uk netherlands 
uh, India and China. So that's that's a brief about shell ventures. When it comes to E4, uh, it's kind of a slightly different approach. Uh, we, I mean, E4 is not a venture vehicle for Shell, for which there is a Shell venture which is existing. However, mm-hmm. E4 is a program which was launched in Q4 2017 to accelerate India's transition to a more sustainable energy future by becoming a major actor in the whole entrepreneurial ecosystem by linking the talent, technology, and the capital and know-how for the energy entrepreneurs in the country. So we, we kind of call E4 as a good school for the pre-Series A to Series A startups where they can join Shell for six months to two years. And we will actively work with them for defining the right product market fit, a GTM strategy for them, helping them acquire customers, uh, Shell being most of, at times the first customer for such companies or even giving them deployments and pilots uh, in a lot of cases. And there are three main objectives for E4. One is to co-create and develop the startup ecosystem in India. Second is offer a world-class startup hub along with lab facilities and the other infrastructure facilities, what a company like Shell can bring. And third is to establish a very strong investor network for the energy-related startups in the country. Because in general, it has been felt that the energy startup in India is currently lacking compared to a lot of the other Western countries where it is far more developed. So that's one of the steps forward in this direction for E4, where we want to help develop the whole energy startup ecosystem in country. So is, is it E4 India specific or you have such programs running globally also? Yeah, so I would say the name E4, uh, which runs uh, as a program, is only India specific. Having mm-hmm. said that, Shell does have a lot of open innovation uh, teams and groups which are spread across the globe, which are somewhat similar to E4. And just to tell the name, it's called uh, Shell Game Changer, uh, which works with the companies which are slightly earlier than E4. And the main focus of Game Changer is to de-risk some of the high technical solutions which are existing in the market. So so to basically summarize, yes, Shell does have multiple open innovation vehicles which are existing uh, in different markets, in different names. Uh, but the intent is uh, kind of similar where we want to scale up the companies. Definitely. I think it's it's very helpful for startup to have such uh, ecosystems in place where they can grow, nourish and, you know, understand the necessary details uh, of how to scale and build business. You also mentioned that a lot of these initiatives were in keeping with your strategic um, initiative, like Shell strategic mission. I uh, was just yeah. wondering, what is the financial mandate from the Shell Corporation for both E4 as well as Shell Ventures? And how do you define your strategic mission when it comes to nurturing these startups, especially in the India context? What are your allocations? What is what are the terms for your return on that investment? No, great question. So, uh, for Shell Ventures, uh, yeah, it's, I won't be able to give you the exact uh, the return on investment numbers, but uh, it's it does have a very strong financial mandate. Uh, being a venture capital arm, we do have the responsibility towards uh, the fund and towards the LPs, you know, which is in this case, it's a balance sheet investment. So the responsibility is towards uh, the company Shell and all the shareholders. Uh, but there's a very strong financial mandate for Shell Ventures. So none of the investment what will be done from Shell Ventures will be on the grounds of only the technical or the strategic relevance. It will always have an element of financial returns, which is one of the driving factors for investment as well. Uh, on the E4 side, since it's not an investment vehicle, the the intent is always to bring the best innovative and the best technical and business model disruption within the company with the intent of deploying such solution within the shell assets so in the in the case of e4 financial metrics and financial returns kind of take a backseat and the strategic angle is more on the forefront whereas for shell ventures both the elements are equal of equal importance uh, on the indian context uh, how we are kind of visualizing E4, which is uh, and Shell Ventures, both which are present uh, in India, is we look for solutions which are of again strategic relevance to Shell, and then at the end you look for areas which the Indian startup ecosystem can support. So if I kind of maybe just throw some light on how Shell is visualizing uh, the Indian startup ecosystem uh, and some of the trends what we're observing in this case. So because of COVID, you would see there is a there's a big inflection point. Uh, in the whole startup ecosystem, uh, especially the last year, what we have seen, there are there are themes which have kind of gone more prominence. There's an inflection point 
for a lot of different uh, kind of startups as well. And if I want to touch upon some of the key uh, areas where Shell has kind of seen a shift happening, uh, the, number one is the online consumption. So over over the last 12 months, because of COVID, there has been such a massive online consumption, which has kind of given a big boost to some of the areas like education, tech, uh, online deliveries, grocery sector, and particular everything which a person can really do online. So online consumption has really increased. That's one of the biggest trends. Second, uh, there's been a big focus on health tech. You know, uh, I think everybody has realized how important uh, the healthcare system is and how vulnerable uh, countries like India are when it comes to developing the healthcare system. So there's a big push now which is happening on the whole startup innovations in the healthcare sector. A uh, few of the other things which, which we are observing is on the media and entertainment, right? Because of the online consumption, because of people being at home, there's so much of media and entertainment consumption which is kind of growing. And the average time what people spend on these things has substantially increased almost 2.5x in last uh, one year. And as a result, uh, there's been a big focus on the whole digital transformation uh, which is coming across. Uh, one of the other important trends what is coming and very relevant for companies like Shell is the advent of the digital solutions in the small and medium enterprises. So because of COVID and in general, these SMEs have realized that hey, to be really successful and to build long-term scalability and long-term economic business, they really need to adopt the digital solutions within their companies. And that's one of the trends which we're observing that a lot of these SMEs are kind of uh, being more open to solutions like predictive maintenance, a lot of uh, other solutions which are relevant for their own businesses. Uh, another trend which we're seeing is this whole uh, contactless transactions, uh, which is kind of coming along, people being more safety conscious, uh, digital payments are kind of uh, enhancing a lot. Uh, so fintech focus is kind of again coming in. Uh, travel and hospitality is kind of severely, impact, severely impacted. That's one of the trends which uh, should remain more or less uh, the way it is. And again, one more sector where Shell is very, very actively looking in and has been very active in the past is mobility. So we feel mobility sector will kind of slowly recover when the social distancing norms are kind of completely eased out and people are more free in going to their offices and then the demand for the shared mobility will come up again. So it's, it's a mixed view what uh, Shell Ventures and E4 is having in the Indian startup ecosystem where certain sectors uh, like healthcare, education tech, digital transformation, contactless payments are taking kind of inflection point for their growth. Whereas certain areas like uh, mobility and travel hospitality are kind of really still coming up uh, slowly. Thank you. That's a very comprehensive understanding of the Shell's overarching mission. But just going back to our previous question, Shell uh, has, I mean, Shell Corporation is funding both the E4 as well as the Shell Ventures initiative. So in terms of the financials of it, how have they divided that allocation? And if my understanding is correct, uh, you don't really have a financial uh, investment when it comes to E4. You're looking at contribution capital which is nurturing these uh, cutting-edge technologies, disruptive innovation, and then trying to incorporate it in the mainstream. Is that right? Right, absolutely. So in terms of financial contribution, uh, Shell Ventures is a balance sheet investment for Shell. Uh, and typically, uh, Shell Venture does 100 to $120 million of investment across the globe. Uh, there is no country-specific allocation for Shell Venture investment. So all this $120 million uh, is divided basis the best startup investment opportunities what we get, uh, which can be across across any country in the in the world. So there's no country specific budgets which are allocated in the beginning of the year. Having said that, one of the good things what Shell Venture does is say it's a global investment committee. So any investment which is kind of looked at is at a global uh, IC level where people right from US to China are kind of sitting at the one IC and debating the investment. So every investment is uh, done on its own merits. Uh, without any country-specific biases coming in. That's one thing. On the E4 side, uh, there is a small budget allocation because along with all the uh, intangible support and the business-related support, what we do intend to give to the startups, uh, there is also an element of cash uh, input what we give, which is a small amount compared to the intangible portions. But we really feel that the, the early-stage companies also need a small amount of cash to kind of cover their expenses and uh, be actively uh, supporting and working with Shell during the program. But yeah, it's, it's not the critical, I would say, motive of the E4 program, whereas Shell Ventures, it took more of a funding arm. 
Siddharth, given from your perspective, you had the front row seat, shell venture perspective and E4 side. If you can uh, share with us your three biggest deals and walk us through them so that the listeners can understand, you know, what goes behind them or what were the most challenging aspects, like what is the mindset uh, behind a particular deal? If you can share your share some names, etc. Yeah, so uh, without kind of going maybe in specific names, uh, I want to tell the listeners mm-hmm. around some of the critical uh, I would say mantras of working uh, with a corporate on the startup uh, or in the innovation landscape, uh, because see, more or less uh, there is a big trend uh, which is coming uh, in India that a lot of the corporates are getting active in the whole innovation ecosystem, and there's a big push which is coming from the corporates that hey, there's there's very limited amount what the corporates can do internally within their own organization, so everybody is kind of uh, having eyes and ears on the ground and look out for new technologies and new businesses which can really help them be more relevant uh, for the future. So as a result, the startup ecosystem becomes very relevant in, in every country, not just in India, but across the globe. This is a trend which we're observing. So as a result, you would see more and more of corporates kind of coming in. But at the same time, this also possesses a challenge to the startup uh, themselves because see, corporates in general are not the front runners when it comes to working with startups. You know what I mean? Mm. They are not as nimble as uh, as startups are. They are not as uh, savvy in the whole uh, ecosystem as startups are. They are still learning the whole art of uh, working with the startups and the innovation people. So there are both challenges and uh, there are both uh, positive sides of corporates being in the startup ecosystem. And the biggest positive, what I really see is the corporates can really provide uh, a lot of strength apart from the financial capital. Because you do have like VCs which are which have been existing across the globe since almost more than 50 years now and in India last 20 years. But the VCs were primarily relying on the financial strength. And there was always this void that the startups, especially in the early stages, need that technical, need that strategic benefit, need that handholding, what maybe corporate can provide them better. So it's, it's a mixed mixed view back, I would say, which is existing in the ecosystem now. And for any mm-hmm. startup who wants to work with a corporate, I, for me there are there are three very critical things which uh, are very which are very I would say in the in the front and the startup should always be aware of. Number one is the issues around the intellectual property. So see, for every startup, in fact, for any startup which is uh, on the technical side, uh, an IP or a trade secret or any secret sauce, whatever you want to call it is of utmost importance uh, because most of the times they have spent years and they've spent a huge amount of effort in building their solid IP. So whenever whenever a startup should engage with a corporate, any discussion or any collaboration or any sort of agreement around IP should be very, very clear because in my experience, I've seen uh, IP issue kind of coming in as a big deal breaker in certain situation as well as a lot of conflicts which can come between the relationship of a startup and a corporate if the IP so, issues are not kind of resolved. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal? Because that's a very critical point you mentioned, Siddharth, in terms of uh, IP conflicts, because when you're dealing with the corporate or giant, right, how do you manage it? So what has been the strategy from Shell perspective uh, to um, avoid or clearly define boundaries in terms of how do you resolve such issues? Uh, assuming a, t- a typical startup is working with Shell and they have developed the IP together, building on top of what they already have. So how do you go about such situations? Yeah, great, great uh, question. And I would say it's, 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 a, it's a very tricky situation to be in because there is no, uh, there are no kind of written rules around how one should handle the IP situation because every corporate, every entity has its own ways of working and has its own kind of premise of why they're working with the startup. Uh, Speaking about Shell, uh, the the critical intent for Shell to work with the startup was to get exposed to some of the cutting-edge technologies. One of the most, uh, sorry, one of the most important things uh, what they should be looking in is how they can be more startup-friendly. And I think that's one of the motives what I always and what Shell always goes with is uh, how they can be the most startup-friendly in nature, uh, being it in terms of IP or any other affirmative rights. Things around IP to note, uh, some of the critical things to note are, number one, uh, how do you manage the past IPs which are being held by a startup? Because when a startup starts working with the corporate, there is a lot of IP which they do carry with them before they start this relationship. And one of the things what we have realized is it's very important 
to give the comfort to a startup that hey all the ips what they have with them in the past will always remain with them there won't be any encroachment of that ip there won't be any change of ownership on that ip and that ip will always remain with these startups so that that's a very important comfort to give to the companies uh, and however it's it's also important to look from a corporate viewpoint here that hey although the startup will always have the ownership of that ip how can the corporate people get a view or get an insight into what that ip is capable of doing because we need to have a very balanced view otherwise the corporate will never work with a startup and the startup will never feel comforted with the corporate so having that balance is very important in this first space as shell right you are not just providing uh, financial capital but uh, the entire ecosystem uh, surrounding shell right uh, in terms of it could be business help or different ways shell is contributing into the investment right it is not a typical vc per se which is just only contributing financial capital what do you see in the future coming in more corporates will be setting up such funds uh, because they can see okay uh, we have much more leverage or edge in terms of when we are investing or do you see the future will be more in terms of vc and corporation coming together to form such things what shell is doing now yeah it's it's kind of again a very very interesting dynamics what we are seeing uh, at least uh, at least how i'm seeing the whole ecosystem evolving is there are more and more corporates uh, which are kind of testing the waters of this vc ecosystem and then there is a journey you know which we should always keep in mind that it is not in the corporates dna to start working with the startups to start investing like a vc firm does and start thinking about the whole uh, you know the startup uh, ecosystem and the landscape there it's it's not part of their dna for any corporate they are used to working on their own business that's their bread and butter they know how to run their mills and their own assets and their operations and their own people that that's their kind of bread and butter when it comes to startup it's a completely new domain for them however they also feel that there's a lack of innovation which is inside the company and for them to be relevant in future they really need startups now there are a couple of ways what people have started to evolve in this space uh, they always test uh, the waters i would say and uh, testing the waters one of the important steps uh, what corporates are doing is to do uh, fund investments you know not directly do the startup investments but invest in funds as an lp uh, which can give them a good exposure on the startup ecosystem deal flow how to work with the startup how does a venture fund kind of interacts with the companies and it's it's a very steep learning curve for them by doing this fund of fund investments and at the same time it can give them exposure into geographies into sectors in which they are not present at all so again i think going on the first step they they have this uh they have this step uh, kind of a learning curve where fund investments can act as a very good uh, stepping point uh, into their own journey and then once they're more comfortable with the startup ecosystem you know once they're comfortable with uh, how the how that functions how the startups operate then they can start thinking of uh, doing direct investments into companies and relying on shell ventures example as well uh, shell ventures also has done a lot of the fund of fund investments in areas where or in geographies where shell is not present say in korea and japan even in locations where shell is present like israel uh that's a, the, yeah that's a very interesting point uh, we were going to uh, we were just wondering because we came across this uh, on your website the shell is the only international company to be granted approval by the indian government for the retail fuel business in india till date is that right uh right absolutely yes so so uh, with with yeah. regard to your e4 digital track in india which was in collaboration with invest india the maharashtra state innovation society can you share how this collaboration actually came about like what uh, what was your starting point when you wanted to enter the indian subcontinent and uh, nurture this uh, startup ecosystem or even the capital portion of it when it comes to the green energy right. sector Yeah, no, I think it's it's a it's a great question again, and it has been a long journey for Shell. Uh, so maybe I'll I'll kind of uh, take this question in a manner where how Shell kind of uh, started in India. So it has been uh, the Shell has been active in India almost now more than ten plus years, and I think fifteen years I would say to be precise, uh, in different different forms and shapes. Uh, when it comes to the whole startup uh, ecosystem, and you know how we started thinking. See, one of the things what we what we did was. we went we went on the ground and started to connect with different stakeholders be it uh, people from government people from education institutions people from startup uh, community people from vc world to understand what are the current gaps what a company like shell can really help them resolve in the whole startup ecosystem 
And one of the important things, and I would say a few of the important things what came across our way was there was a lack of a very strong energy and mobility ecosystem for the old startups. There was a lack of a corporate who can provide strategic and global exposure to the Indian startups. So those were two of the very important things, you know, which which came up, uh, came across our way when we started doing more research and started to talk to people from uh, from different parts of India, be it uh, government agencies, you know, people like Maharashtra State Innovation Society or people uh, from different uh, state governments and people from startup ecosystem. So we did a lot of those homework. And, and then one of the important things, uh, you know, we also worked on is that, hey, how Shell can play an active role in uh, supporting the companies. So with that viewpoint in mind, uh, we came up that, hey, you know, there's no one company or there's no organization which can really solve all the problems of a startup. And there was a very big push and very changed mindset which was evolving that, hey, partnerships in the whole startup ecosystem were becoming very important. And that was one of the things what we also brought into fold is we brought in a lot of external partners in the form of uh, government agencies like Maharashtra State Government. A uh, lot of uh, the central uh, government agencies as well, like the Startup India Mission, a lot of VC funds, a uh, lot of uh, corporates as well, like Amazons of the world and Googles of the world as well. And we brought together the whole ecosystem of partners to help these startups. And that's what has really worked a, a lot in our favor. And also the startups are liking it, that it is not just Shell alone who is kind of helping them. But it is a host yeah. of external partnerships, you know, spread across all these categories, which is helping them evolve the business. That's very interesting. So you would say that uh, the government cooperation with regard to Shell entering the Indian market was amenable. They wanted you on board. And do you have any tie up with, say, the Indian public sector when it comes to making this energy transition for them as well? Or these are very separate lines for you at the moment? Yeah, so, uh, so so again, interesting. So the energy transition is very broad uh, thesis for Shell. And one of the most important uh, thing which is currently being looked at, you know, as, as you would imagine uh, with the advent of uh, very strong companies like Tesla's of the world, everybody is kind of focusing on the green energy mix and uh, low carbon energy energy mix as well. So uh, energy transition is spreading across multiple domains for Shell, uh, be it in terms of decarbonizing the industrial sector using Shell's uh, support. Uh, decarbonizing the whole mobility area as well, uh, where again, Shell is a very important player. And then at the end, helping uh, decarbonizing the whole energy mix using more solar, wind versus uh, hydrocarbon, which were used in the past. So with these three important pillars, uh, we have formed partnership uh, with a lot of, I would say, big uh, private players for sure. And recently, one of the biggest partnership what Shell announced across the globe was with Microsoft, uh, where uh, Microsoft would be providing a lot of technical and digital solutions to help Shell on the energy transition, whereas Shell would be actively working with Microsoft on uh, providing them support on uh, uh, reducing the uh, energy consumption at their assets as well. So it's kind of very mutually uh, successful partnerships, uh, which is happening. Uh, in regard with uh, the public sectors of India as well, there's always, uh, I would say, very collaborative relationship what uh, Shell has had with uh, each of them. Uh, there is no formal partnership uh, which we're striking as of now on the startup ecosystem, however, because every every uh, PSU uh, in India and every, uh, I would say, different agencies is having their own ways of working with the companies. And we till now haven't kind of really dealt with any strong partnership with them. So, Siddharth, you were going through uh, Shell Ventures investment portfolio companies and Shell Shell Ventures has made approximately 92 investments, right? Yeah. With approximately 18 exits. So, if you can help us understand what was the sort of, what are your criteria when you look for an exit? Is it financial performance? I mean, what goes behind the thought process to have an exit? At what stage do you feel it is right to have an exit in the portfolio company? Yeah, no, absolutely. And see, uh, exit is always one of the most uh, difficult things for any investor. Uh, yes. I always tell them, right? I mean, it's it's kind of 10 times easy to make an investment and 100 times more easy to, 100 times more difficult to make an exit uh, for any portfolio company. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would say I would kind of take a step back again and, you know, I'll, I'll kind of focus on what exactly do we look for in a successful company when we make them at the portfolio company? Because, see, the exit mindset is very important to have right when you make the investment decision. Uh, that's one thing which we have learned in the venture thing is we can't think about exits maybe after two or three years after making the investment. 
we need to think about exits as soon or even before we bring any investment to the investment committee that hey will this be an exist will this investment give me an exit and who are those players who can give exit to shell so it's very important to have that mindset right from the beginning so coming on what do we really look for in a successful company i would say there are there are a lot of people you know kind of can focus on important things but there are three important criteria what uh, shell ventures has kind of been looking in the past and one of them is the market so mm. when we say that hey you know are you really targeting a market which is growing at a very rapid pace you know and how big is the competition are you solving a customer problem that people are willing to pay for because you know you may you may end up solving a lot of problems but if nobody is willing to pay for the solution then it is of no use so that's very important thing second thing is materiality and scalability of the business model so can the tech or the business model scale to a proportion which is material to any of the businesses what shell is working on or does it have a very attractive cost down curve or compared to the other alternatives is the ip very unique so we look at you know all those uniqueness around uh, ip or te- technology and how scalable scalable is the solution and here i would like to bring one example i mean a lot of people a lot of us are reading about uh, google uh, alphabet shutting down uh, their loon business right Mm-hmm. which is one of the uh, solar powered balloons which was supposed to give access of internet uh, across the globe it correct still a great solution right i mean still a great technical solution but what what has not worked in the favor is the commercial scalability so an important thing to keep in mind you know when we when we look for startup and when we look for exit is how technical and commercially scalable the solution is only one parameter will never succeed and the third important thing is the teams you know i mean like all teams all the I minutes mean, it's the most important thing but uh, yeah just just in terms of hierarchy it's, it's one of the very important things when we look and does the management team has the experience are they coachable uh, is the team really passionate and dedicated to the uh, startup what they're working on you know what's the quality and experience of the directors on the board so we look for all those important things uh, when we make these investments and thereby right at the investment committee when we make the investments comes a point in view that hey who are those players who can give exit to any venture backed companies so if i am kind of making investment at series a who are those respective vcs or private equity players who can give me an exit at maybe series b or series c level which is very important mm-hmm. right uh, some of the important exit criteria what we look in is absolutely the return on investment that what is the multiple i'm getting on the investment uh, which i put in and you always try to get the most out of the multiple but yeah i mean we know a multiple of uh, even 1.5 or 1.6x is a very good multiple to exit uh, you know after 3 mm-hmm. to 5 years time yeah uh, second what we also look in uh, is when we exit the equity position is our strategic relationship with the company will be hampered or not because a lot of times any corporate would make an investment into a startup with the view of having a tighter strategic relationship with that company absolutely right and mm. does the exiting of the equity position will it hamper the strategic relationship or not is a very important criteria so in this case we don't think like a financial vc you know financial vcs would be more concerned about hey what is the best time for me to exit given my maximum financial return right whereas a strategic player any corporate like shell or somebody else would be thinking that hey along with the financial return what is the best point in time for me to exit keeping my strategic benefits in mind as well if you can share sadar some of your biggest exits or the key exits which you had recently in shell ventures yeah so i see one of the one of the interesting exits uh, what we had was in a company called sonen uh, it's a it's a battery uh, residential battery making company based out of germany uh, where shell ventures kind of did an investment uh, uh, in 2018 if i'm not wrong and then within uh, 12 to 15 months uh, we had one of the shell businesses acquiring the entire company so it's kind of an internal exit i always call it but it gave us the biggest uh, bang for the buck uh, because the valuation at what shell venture did a minority equity investment and at what valuation the company got acquired was significantly higher so it was it was a great exit for us uh, and again this also alludes me to the point that a lot of times when shell venture does the investment minority investment there is a possibility that uh, we can also look at uh, companies being acquired by company for some strategic benefits so it kind of goes again in the favor of such companies as well uh, another another kind of uh, exit uh, not not a complete exit which we had and we are still not exiting the company uh, is in a company called rover uh, it's a uk based uh, car subscription company 
uh, we did this investment uh, mid 2020 so six or eight months back uh, we just closed the investment and uh, within uh, four months the company kind of got acquired by larger strategic player in the uk market although we kind of still uh, kept our equity position in the company we didn't exit at that point in time uh, with the acquisition also we have the minority equity position but again it's it's a great success right i mean 2.5x oh. in uh, what maybe six months so oh. some of the good examples where uh, acquisitions have happened in in startups where Shell Ventures has put in minority positions. Uh, going back to uh, your global investment committee and this strategic positioning, uh, your investment in India has just been surrounded around Husk Power System. So that's energy transition. Uh, how have you? How does this committee yeah. plan your geopolitical strategy? That because you've been yeah. you're very very dominant in the United States and same right. goes for the United Kingdom. But yeah. uh, I, we did notice that your global portfolio, it was uh, focused on Husk or similar companies in, say, South Africa and South Asia. Right. But you are diversifying when it comes to, it. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, biofuels and whatnot when it comes to the remaining part of the geographies. So just wondering how has that committee taken India and the subcontinent into account? And what is actually, what lies ahead for us in the future from Shell's point of view? Absolutely, no great, great question again. So, in terms of India, uh, out of the eighty plus company portfolio, what Shell Venture has, uh, there are four companies, uh, four investments, what we have made uh, in the Indian startups. Uh, one of them, you rightly said, is the Husk Power Systems, uh, which is operating in the space of uh, microgrids, uh, especially focusing on uh, the semi-urban to rural areas of UP and Bihar, giving uh, access to energy to people who right now don't have a reliable source of energy to them, right? Because in India, you would say almost one third of the population, which is close to 300 million people, yet don't have access to reliable energy to them every day, uh, which is one of the biggest uh, concern for, for, the, for the whole country. So Husk Power absolutely tries to kind of work on that whole problem to give access to energy to those uh, segment of population. Uh, the second investment uh, what has been made in India is in a company called Orb Energy, ORB. Uh, which is into the space of uh, solar power financing. It works actively with uh, the small and medium enterprises uh, to work, uh, give them attractive financial solutions, which can enable them uptake the renewable power uh, ecosystem and renewable power assets uh, for them. Uh, the third investment is uh, into a company uh, called uh, Punjab Renewables Energy Systems Limited, in short, uh, PRESPL, uh, which is into the space of uh, biomass uh, supply chain aggregation. Uh, as you would imagine, and maybe this is a very interesting investment, and I want to give a bit more introduction on this one, is uh, as you would imagine, uh, Shell does have a very unique uh, tech in place to convert the high carbon waste into fuel, into hydrocarbon. However, aggregating that whole high carbon waste is a big challenge in a country like India, and not just in India, I would say it's a, it's a challenge across the globe, that how do we yeah. economically and commercially aggregate that waste? be it waste of rice husk, be it waste of uh, pine leaves, be it waste of uh, bamboo or anything you can think of. So this company sure. has a very unique model of aggregating the waste, uh, which is very important. And the fourth investment uh, we did in India is a company called D-Light, uh, which is into the solar, uh, we can say solar equipment uh, supplier company. So four investments in, in the country. How we are thinking of India, again, I think uh, a very, uh, very, Different outlook uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, compared to maybe some other corporates is we are focusing on uh, solutions uh, which would be very relevant for the Indian ecosystem in general. So mobility is one of the biggest uh, focus for us uh, within Shell and in, in India. And mobility mm -hmm. is standing across uh, both smart mobility and shared mobility and the EV ecosystem. Uh, EV and electric mobility is one of the biggest phenomena which would be hitting the country in the next few years. And Shell mm -hmm. wants to be a very active player in the whole e-mobility ecosystem. And to your last point, that hey, how Shell is kind of actively expanding the retail footprint, and one of the you know one of the only private players to be given the retail operating license. Uh, we want to ensure that we build a very holistic ecosystem of combining the retail footprint with the whole electric mobility ecosystem of charging stations and battery swapping units, so that we can enable the whole e-mobility journey for uh, India. That's one. Uh, the second big focus uh, for Shell in India on the investment side is uh, on the digital digitalization element. So you would imagine, right, I mean, uh, in India, digital software, IT 
are few of the very important backbones for the Indian ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And there are so many unique solutions uh, which the startups are kind of coming up with on the whole digitalization element, you know, be it a, a digital SME sector or a power sector or energy trading or access to energy. So there's a whole exposure and a whole gamut of uh, startup innovations which are hitting the clean tech energy on the digital transformation side. So again, very, very mm-hmm. big focus for Shell uh, in, the India, in India for investing in such companies. Right. So those are my two big focus uh, going into 2021 for investing in startups. And the third, I would say, again, you know, one of the more prominent sector is the logistics tech sector, mm-hmm. you know, be it marketplace, be it uh, agri-tech logistics. You know, you wouldn't believe uh, agriculture is one of the largest sources of GHG, the greenhouse gas emission in the country. Great. Thank you. You were taking us through the Shell business line in India. I uh, was just wondering, um, in terms of, say, your Hazira port project, where you do record the maximum success through your revenues, how do you prioritize this Shell strategic mission, seeing that right. you have integrated verticals, but you're also inching towards um, um, a green energy, like a green investment bubble of sorts, where you're, um, and you did mention that, you know, your Shell carbon footprint is something that's of major concern for you. And if I'm not mistaken, your global CEO, he did say that Shell intends to go, uh, I mean, you tend, intend to have a net zero carbon footprint by 2050 and logistically and operationally that needs to be impacted the most because you can't be green if your logistics and operations are still relying on old technology. Totally. Yeah. So uh, if you could just comment on the revenue portion of um, your business line in India and yeah. how are you taking this at a step-by-step level? Yeah, sure. I think, again, uh, very brilliant uh, thought. So I'll kind of uh, maybe give uh, everyone a gist of uh, what Shell and how Shell is being structured into India and what are the different business lines, uh, what we're focusing on. So some of the important businesses for Shell in India are spanning across retail network, uh, which is, I would say, the most uh, prominent for any consumer to see uh, in the form of retail stations, uh, which are almost close to 200-odd stations now. Uh, apart from the retail stations, uh, there's a very active lubricant business uh, for Shell. Uh, there's a very active uh, fleet solution business, uh, which I will allude to more. What exactly does it mean? Uh, so those are, I would say, the three important business lines. And then there's a fourth, I would say, more miscellaneous kind of a business segment where we work uh, on a lot of the energy transition uh, projects. Uh, we work with a lot of uh, different PSUs on the energy transition as well. Uh, and different different segments are there. So starting off with the first one, the retail sector, uh, there's a very big focus on becoming the retail station for the future. And what I mean is uh, not just dispensing the oil and gas, the hydrocarbon, but also maybe electric mobility, and also enhance the non-fuel revenue portion of that business, uh, which is through the shelled retail stores offering, through the e-commerce offering. So it's a lot of innovation is happening on the shelled retail stations to become the futuristic retail station, focusing on the end-to-end customer experience. That's one. The second is the lubricant business, uh, which does involve uh, selling the lubricants uh, to both the B2B players and the B2C players. And both the retail and the lubricant business does involve heavy amount of logistics, as you rightly said. You know, I mean, transporting fuel across the country, transporting uh, lubricants from uh, the critical warehousing to different lubricant uh, depots, all of them are very logistics-intensive businesses. And there's a big push to kind of make the entire logistics very green and also more efficient. And what I mean efficient is in the form of maybe uh, the routing optimization, uh, in form of uh, loading unloading thing, in form of the demand and supply prediction. So there's a lot of logistics, uh, green or logistics optimization, which is possible both on the retail and the, uh, the lubricant side. The third important business is the fleet solution business, uh, where we work with the fleet operators, uh, people who are owning multiple trucks, multiple uh, commercial vehicles, uh, both on the mobility side and on the logistics side, to give them unique customer offerings, be it in terms of the fuel cards, you know, which can give them preferential rates on the fuel, offer them a lot of uh, value-added services on the fleet, like uh, telematics, which can help them define the vehicle uh, conditions, uh, vehicle diagnostic, give them a lot of value-added services on the vehicle, you know, maybe a, a car servicing offering uh, or maybe cleaning uh, cleaning offering or maybe insurance or uh, maybe uh, road tolling. So 
the fleet customers and the fleet businesses are kind of actively getting expanded into India to offer multiple services on top of the fueling card, which is a base offer. And then there is the fourth miscellaneous section, you know, where we intend to work uh, to enable a lot of the new business models in the country around helping the small and medium enterprises becoming carbon neutral, offer them a lot of uh, solutions uh, from Shell uh, to reduce their own carbon footprint, uh, working with the, uh, the, the, I would say the B2C segment of uh, population to give them uh, say EV charging solutions or a battery swapping solution. So, so the whole energy transition business is the fourth bucket. So these are the four important, I would say the business, the business lines which are operating for Shell in, in, in India. In all these four lines, there's a very big push on the startups. So the startups are playing a very active role across these four value lines. And in fact, some of the stronger partnerships, which are also in the public domain for Shell, are, say, working with companies like Pitstop, uh, which is a mobile on-demand car servicing company, uh, which Shell is partnered with to provide uh, the same solution to our own customers, or working with companies like Ready Assist, on the roadside assistance or Hoopy on the two-wheeler uh, cars, two-wheeler servicing portion. So there are a host of startups which are kind of playing an active role for Shell in India across these different uh, business lines. That's very interesting, Siddharth. Ask a couple of questions from a perspective of a founder, right? So we, uh, in our audience, on our listeners, we have many founders, I'm sure they will be waiting to understand from their perspective a couple of things. So Siddharth, if you can share, for example, uh, you have done many deals through Shell Ventures and E4. If you can help us understand what are some of the crucial terms during a funding round, which a, which a founder should be aware of, like dilution rights, liquidation preferences, yeah. um, you know, uh, asking the question from the other side of the table, uh, since you have negotiated the deals from both from the other side. So what will be your point of view on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's kind of very important uh, for a founder to be very well aware of these terms right from the beginning, you know, because when you kind of uh, launch your own startup, you are still understanding the nuances of the venture investments and uh, deal making and funding thing. So it's very important for the founder to be very uh, poised on uh, these things when he goes and discusses with the investor. So some of the very important things what uh, really comes to my mind are number one is uh, the the entire thing around the IP thing. And I'm kind of bringing this up again because uh, it's one of the very important uh, subjects and point of views what especially a technical founder or a technical startup should bear in mind that he should have a very friendly IP related clauses in the agreement. Uh, there should not be a one-sided thing where the other party, be it corporate or the VC investor, kind of gets all the benefits of the IP along with some rights on the IP and the startup is at the fragging end then. So be very mindful of what you really sign on the paper on the IP side. And we can go into details of those individual things, but IP is very important for kind of me to kind of uh, be very thoughtful and understanding what exactly you are signing on. The second is the liquidation preference. It's kind of a bit a bit complicated for uh, for the early stage founders to understand that hey you know what does liquidation preferences what does participation liquidation what does uh, what are the different nuances of the liquidation preference means one uh, x two x three x I mean there are multiple x's what people can keep in this but it's very important uh, for people to understand so what I would say is uh, gradually more and more VCs are kind of uh, heading towards a very friendly, founder-friendly liquidation preference where they say that, hey, the startup, the investor will only get 1x liquidation preference. And what does that mean is uh, in case of a liquidation, you know, which can be uh, maybe in the form of an IPO or it can be in the form of bankruptcy. So people would kind of get 1x of their capital return, right? Uh, I'm not asking 2x or 3x because liquidation is kind of a very uh, delicate process. However, there are nuances where people start saying that, hey, I want 1x liquidation preference along with participation. So that becomes difficult now. You know, what, what participation means is, hey, after taking 1x of my money, whatever capital is left, and to give an example, you know, if, if the liquidation proceeds gave me $100, and after uh, all the investors have kind of taken maybe 1x or 2x of their preference, uh, the money left is $50. So that $50 is not just left for the founders, but even the all the investors will participate in that pot of money which is left after taking their 1x liquidation preference, Now, which makes it very uh, kind of non-founder friendly, I feel. But this was a yes. trend uh, which was very mm -hmm. prevalent, uh, you know, in, in the early days of VC world when people were not very kind of adept at taking the VC investment risk. They still 
wanted an element oh. of debt investment and a public market equity investment coupled with the VC upside, which is not the best way to think. So, you know, keeping keeping a very interesting view on liquidation preference is very important because these are very very small words, right? I mean, I can always say one x participation. Not many founders would even realize that a one x participation means such a dreaded thing when it comes to the liquidation event. So, have a very strong liquidation uh, kind of a clause in your in your contract, which is which is typically one x. Not many people even ask two x and three x these days. The third thing is on the exit management. You know, I think one of the important things what I've seen in multiple uh, SHAs and multiple contracts, especially if you're dealing with uh, very traditional corporates, you know, very traditional uh, PSUs in, in, in certain cases, that they have a very strong exit clause uh, in the contracts where it says that, hey, after uh, so many years or after three or five years, I should be getting uh, my money plus 20% of return on my money every year. And the founder or the promoter should have the liability to pay me after three years this much amount of money. Now, this is really, really non-founder friendly. This is a really showstopper for me because it's, it kind of it kind of means that hey, you are making a debt investment in the startup where you right. are getting all the benefits of an equity upside. But then at the same time, you also want a fixed return along with that upside, which is not the best way to think. It just puts the founder completely... Uh, in, in, a, in a big pump that hey, they have to give so much of return along with the equity upside to the uh, investors. So be very aware of such uh, very strong worded exit clauses in the agreement. It's it's completely showstopper. Don't ever sign such contracts. Uh, the fourth important thing is a put option. Um, so there, were, there was a time when, uh, and again, it's kind of linked to somewhere exit as well. There was a time when uh, investors used to keep a put option in the contract, which means that, hey, you know, at whatever point in time, uh, if the investor wants to exit, he can exit the company with, with the particular amount of return, you know, and that would push all the other investors and the founders to give that exit to that one particular person. So now that's kind oh, of... really? Yeah. Oh. So it was very, very prevalent, I would say, in the early days of uh, VC world. And still, like, I mean, there are some very conservative investors which have these put options that, hey, you know, whenever I wish, mm-hmm. it's kind of giving a nuclear button in the hand of one investor <laughs> uh, where he can just uh, exit the company whenever he wants and, you know, get the return what he's expecting. So the put options are kind of a very no-go again. And, you know, what we have seen is when we, uh, when we did these four investments into India, some of the uh, terms what we were negotiating, which were given to the investors in the past by the startup, were very non-founder friendly. So one of the one of the other pieces of advice, uh, you know, and maybe suggestion I want to give uh, to the audience is around uh, the cap table management. Uh, see, it's it's kind of a very uh, very interesting thing that how do you manage the cap table in terms of how much equity the founders have at any given point in time. Uh, there are a lot of instances where we shell has also walked away from deals where. We feel the founders don't have enough of equity uh, left for a successful company in the future, because the moment you kind of dilute the founders to a level below 20%, you know, 20 or 30%, uh, maybe by Series B level, this is a very big uh, danger sign for the future investors, because then the founders won't have so much of inclination and so much of skin in the game for a future long-term success of the company. So very be very mindful of how the cap table is structured and how the founders' equity is being diluted in every round. So those are, I would say, my four very important things which you should always be wary of when you know discussing with the VCs uh, on how much uh, funding and what kind of uh, affirmative and economic rights uh, you need to have. Another very small, I would say, provision is uh, around the pre-money and the post-money. You know, I mean, people always go with the view that hey, you know, I want 20 million valuation for my company. Yeah. Now, I mean, you know, uh, what is this 20 million? Is it like 20 million pre-money, 20 million post-money after you have raised around? Because that would completely change the dynamics, right? Are you raising at right. 20 million pre-money or you want to do the post-money at 20 million, right? So have very strong clarity on uh, what exactly is your valuation you have in mind. And never, I would say an advice to the founders would be never quote a range of uh, funding. You know, I mean, one should never go to an investor and say that, hey, I'm raising three to $10 million or three to $5 million. No, I mean, that's that's not the right way to push it. I mean, we should always say that, hey, I'm raising $3 million, but I'm open uh, for a bit of stretch funding as well, you know. Uh, but my target is to close at $3 million first round, first close. 
because then then there's a big bit of clarity which is given that hey you know yeah i mean the founder knows how much he's diluting how much capital does he need because the moment you say that hey, i'm raising 3 to 5 million dollar it kind of gives a message that uh, the startup does not does not really know what it will take to reach the next milestone is it 3 exactly. million or is it 5 million you know so have have exactly. a strong clarity on what you really want to do or how much money you need to raise to reach that next important milestone in your journey which is typically 12 to 18 months time frame so you should always raise capital which can give you a runway of minimum 12 months and a maximum of 18 months and uh, in, in the startup journey uh, these were excellent points adat uh, i think these will be really helpful and the point you mentioned i i, I also have seen couple of companies or founders you know uh, when they are talking in terms of range because it gives sort of the other side sort of loses confidence because you are not really aware uh, what you really want you are just Absolutely. after the money per se right so that can dilute your uh, image brand whatever you want to say and so that from your perspective as um, shell right what has been the most negotiated terms till now for you <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche answer but valuation is one of the important you know terms what uh, we negotiate uh, a bit as well especially when we're leading the round uh mm. how much of a valuation we really want to put at because it's a very subjective thing at the end of the day and maybe again uh, to all the startup founders uh, who are listening this uh it's it's very important to be pragmatic uh, regarding valuation especially in the early stages of the company because your focus especially on the early stages should not be to get as high of a valuation as possible but to get the best people on the cap table which can help you sustain and build a successful company in the long term so you may have to be a bit more realistic and even a bit more sacrificing on the valuation element especially in the early stages of the startup's growth to bring the right sort of people on the cap table which can help you deliver that long term growth so valuation is one of the i would say very discussed and debated uh, concerns and issues with the startup founders always right the second is a bit around a lot of the affirmative rights you know around uh, that hey you know yeah i do want uh, some sort of liquidation preference i do want some sort of board positions uh, some sort of control provisions around uh, how much of a tag along or a drag along uh, kind of a thing i have but these are very smaller discussions you know i think once we have the, the once we have kind of decided on the critical part of the startup's funding how much money and what's the pre money valuation how much dilution i need to have right once that is sorted the rest everything falls in place and what's your take away on the high valuations which you are seeing in the current market trends uh, uh what's your take on that yeah again i think yeah great thing so see uh, uh, i always feel that hey you know every crisis kind of presents an opportunity and uh, one should not let a crisis kind of go waste uh, so yeah i mean the current crisis current covid thing has kind of uh, made certain sectors really hot and to name a few of them like education tech is really hot sector now uh, online consumption online gaming is a very hot sector now so those are a few of the areas where the valuations have really gone out of the roof and uh, at least our view is that hey we should we should kind of uh, hold off uh, tapping into those hot sectors now let them kind of cool off in maybe a few months uh, and then kind of tap into those ones however at the same time from shells perspective there are areas which have kind of uh, i would say taken a bit of hit uh, because of covid and to name uh, one of them is uh, the shared mobility transportation thing uh, which has uh, taken a bit of hit because of covid uh, the demand is not there the supply is kind of being hit as well so the valuations are kind of a bit low in that whole space so being a smart investor i think we think this is the right time to kind of take a bet on such companies which we feel have it has a long term potential to scale up uh, but at the same time just because of the current supply demand dynamics the valuations are pretty low so we are kind of being more focused on uh, those you can say those interesting uh, more cost efficient deals as of now versus uh, putting our hand on those really hot items so that since you mentioned the green investment bubble that we're inching towards and you both discussed the skyrocketing valuations of some of the firms that we were discussing mm-hmm. which is wondering uh, but since the shell corporation is trying to bring innovative research as well as technology under its umbrella um and that's pretty visible from you know your global portfolio you're trying to lead this uh, movement and revolution from the front who is your biggest competitor in the green energy space and uh, when it comes to this green investment bubble that we are viewing at this point uh, how does uh, 
I mean, how would you recommend that an investor be cautious of making sure that the company that they, you know, uh, betting on is actually going to stay around for the next three to four years at least? Um, as you rightly mentioned, uh, you look at teams and you look at that purpose uh, when it comes to execution. But technology is also developing and changing at a very rapid pace, and the needs are changing at a rapid pace as well. So, how do you, how would you advise investors to be cautious of this trend? Yeah, so I think to the, to the first question, who are the competitors? You know, and I think this is the the whole green investment uh, and the whole uh, environmental sustainability investment is uh, one of the very upcoming spaces as of now. So not just uh, venture funds, but even big corporates are kind of pumping in billions of dollars of innovation money. And to name a few, Amazon launched the Climate Fund, you know, which is a multi-billion-dollar yeah. fund uh, in this category. Uh, Google's Microsoft have their own uh, fund in this space as well. So this is this is one space which is gaining a lot of attention from people across the globe now. And uh, there's a large competition which is emerging, not just from the traditional VC funds, uh, not just from the traditional financial investors, but even from the strategics like the Amazons and Googles of the world, which are kind of coming up uh, with big amount of capital in this space. So there is there is enormous competition, I would say, which is also kind of good uh, for the companies because you know they they see a lot of potential for fundraising because traditionally green tech, clean tech, uh, all this space has been a bit of a low investment attracting spaces in the VC world, as you would see. Like you know, if you look historically at the data. In the U.S. as well, I mean, uh, clean tech, mobility, uh, these were one of the lowest uh, investment attracting spaces. But with the coming of uh, larger funds, I think there's a lot of focus and there are a lot of good startups which are coming in this space. So competition is absolutely there uh, from both corporate houses and from VC investors, uh, but mm-hmm. which at the end is a good thing for the entire ecosystem development. Just like, you know, FinTech had a lot of competition, but which led to emergence of a lot of uh, interesting techs as well. So we are imagining the same thing will happen for the green uh, and climate uh, tech investment too. In terms of uh, what investors should be wary of uh, in investing in such companies, see, it's it's kind of a uh, very interesting pieces because a lot of the solutions uh, in the uh, carbon uh, neutrality or on the green uh, tech side are sometimes investments which has a very long term horizon, which mm-hmm. may not be very relevant for a VC investors to bet on. You know, for a financial VC to be betting on, because they would want a quick scale up, quick exit, quick return, three to five year window, and you know they should be done return with their money back. Uh, however, there are companies uh, which are focusing on, say, a new battery chemistry, right? Companies which are building alternatives to lithium ion, which are still mm-hmm. in the phase of a lab or which are still commercializing their product. Now it's a long term journey, right? They need they need a partner which can be with them for maybe five years, seven years, even ten years down the line. So uh, having a very strict mandate or having having a lot of clarity around what exactly is your organization objective when you are making investments in these kind of uh, spaces, you know, especially the clean tech is very important. Because if you are having the ambition of a quick return on buck or quick uh, financial VC kind of an ambition, then certain areas of uh, clean tech like battery chemistry, like innovations on uh, say windmills or new energy domains, that may not be your sector of focus. And then the investor should be focusing more on the software side of uh, new energies and the software side of uh, climate tech. Yeah, that's number one. So if I understand this correctly, you're saying that there needs to be a focus on the R&D aspect of it as well, not just the uh, financial portion of it. So how do you integrate your, I mean, how do you share your research and development if you do? Because it is a very big part of the Shell mission overall. So do you um, share your research and your insights with these portfolio companies or are these two very separate things? No, absolutely, yes. Uh, we, in fact, do. And one of the important criteria when Shell does investments, and I'm sure a lot of other corporates when they do investment, is also to look for the deployment of these solutions within their companies. You know, collaboratively working with them. In fact, there are startups where we are doing joint R&D projects with them, where we are sharing what Shell has learned, what Shell has done in the R&D space uh, in, in particular areas. And the startup is bringing their own nimbleness, their own innovation journey, their own expertise. And we together are kind of working on the joint R&D projects. So that absolutely is one of the critical domain for Shell when we work with startups and which also leads to investments uh, in, the, in this territory. Uh, to the other question that hey uh, whether the investments are required in both these uh, categories yes absolutely uh, because we would need a lot of r&d focus as well along with just the financial might 
And uh, what we and Shell is doing in this space is to have a good amount of exposure on both these uh, categories. You know, we can't just be putting in money in the long-term gestation uh, startup cycles around R&D innovation and not focus on the short-term, uh, you know, uh, venture world as well, because we feel both are equally important. So if you see the portfolio, uh, there has been investment in companies which are working on LiDAR, you know, which is the uh, laser diode uh, for uh, autonomous self-driving cars. Now, this is uh, not something which we know will be delivered in the next one or two years, right? It's, it's a long-term play where we need to be invested in the company for maybe five or seven years, right? So uh, there are investments which are done in this category as well, whereas there are certain investments which are done in very uh, immediate uh, near-term and uh, VC uh, like companies as well, like say uh, shared mobility players, companies like Ravel in the US or companies like Orb Energy, which are into India solar financing. Those are very short-term gestation companies, you know, business model innovations, fintech innovations, which we feel are very close to the financial VC world. So equal focus on both are very important, especially when you are thinking from a uh, green tech and climate perspective. Wonderful, wonderful, Siddharth. Uh, I think we have taken a lot of your time. To wrap it up, uh, I want to ask one of our favorite questions in the series. So Siddharth, seeing you have done many investments, you have been part of many deals. So if you can share from your experience, you know, things which you wish you had known before and done differently now or which you are doing differently nowadays? Yeah, so I would say uh, one of the things uh, which, <laughs> uh, I mean, always evolve in that journey, right? Be it, be it an mm. investor or be it an entrepreneur, I really feel we evolve in, the, in our journey. So one of the things, at least uh, from, a found, from a founder's perspective, if I tell, you know, uh, one of the important things which I really want all the founders to believe is to be very passionate about what they're doing, you know, because I come across a lot of startups where either the founders or the team members are really not passionate about what they're doing. And it really is very apparent, you know, I mean, you can, you can, uh, you can try to fake it, but it's very apparent when you engage with them for longer durations that, hey, the team is not really passionate about what they're doing. So have a very solid uh, passion, solid reason why you're doing what you're doing kind of thing, because that really shows your commitment on the companies. So that's, that's one of my important learnings, you know, which I want to throw upon all the startup founders. Uh, second is be very transparent, you know, what really matters to them. Uh, I think one of the things what I have learned and what I do differently now is when I go into deal negotiations, uh, I'm very upfront in terms of uh, telling the other party on what really matters to me in this deal negotiation. Because at the end, see, it's a negotiation and both the parties should really feel win-win at the end of the negotiation cycle. Because if anyone feels that, hey, they have not got the most optimal output, it's it's never going to succeed so be very upfront in what matters the most to you in a negotiation process it's something which uh, i have learned over time as well uh, by doing so many negotiations now uh, that you need to be very upfront in telling the expectations uh, to each other the third thing in general i always tell people is uh, always have a very founder friendly mindset uh, you know coming from a corporate uh, there's always this uh, intent that i want the best uh, for the corporate you know and i want to maybe have this one-sided deal which which kind of never works so uh mm. things which i do kind of differently now is uh, i i adopt a very founder friendly mindset where i think like a startup founder i think from their point of view you know what really matters to them what is really important to them to kind of uh, get and what is important for them to understand so having a very founder friendly mindset is very important uh, which kind of comes when you do more and more deals but it's it's very important thing again to adopt so those would be my three picks, you know, what what I do differently, what I was doing was say maybe three or five years back. Wonderful, wonderful, Siddharth. Thank you so much for your time and sharing these amazing insights. I'm sure it will be a lot of help to all the listeners out there. Again, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you. Same well. Thank you so much, Ashish and Vishnu Priya. Pleasure talking thank to you. you. Thank you, Siddharth. I think you've covered passion, uh, financials, uh, operations, statistics. This is like a VC 101 for anybody interested in the energy space. Very excited for this. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Have a good day then.